Well, it's great to be back again to connect with everyone, and that we hope you are enjoying the podcast series. Um, we're going to continue the conversation today, uh, talking about uh, service of of documents to that start a lawsuit, or what they people call service of process. And uh, but before we get to that, our, as our normal routine is, we're going to be talking about a current event. And uh, one that we have we've talked about a little bit before, you know, you most people probably have now heard the term force majeure or either seen it. And that's one of those terms that we actually didn't even see in law school and fully understand it uh, for most parts until you get in the contract law. Um, but it really is something that um, that, you know, people may negotiate in their contracts, um, at least early on. Um, but now it's becoming a lot more uh, prevalent. To people start asking these kinds of questions, and so one of the the topics that we want to talk about today is how that we what how does that really impact uh, business today? But also using uh, the opportunities to look at the impossibility of performance uh, of a of a contract, and also the commercial impracticality or impracticability of uh, performing that contract, and whether or not that. Um, lets someone out of a contract, right? So uh, right when the pandemic started, um, we, uh, and most, you know, most people started looking at these issues, whether or not the pandemic would excuse um, con contractual obligations because people could not um, perform, right? Based off of either the governor's um, uh, order to stay home, if you were not an essential uh, business, uh, again, we're looking specifically at North Carolina law, uh, but again, looking at the, the, the defenses there. So impo impossibility of performance would excuse a party from performing, and case law says, if the subject matter of the contract is destroyed without the fault of the party seeking to be excused from performance. And that was from a, a 1981 case. Uh, it's a Brenner, B-R-E-N-N-E-R case that the, the court looked at that. Um, and there's other case law in North Carolina that talks about the impossibility, right? So that if the subject matter of the contract, it must be actually physically destroyed or so the impossibility would generally not apply to contracts for services. So the impossibility may apply to contracts for services uh, if the location where the services were to be performed, say, is destroyed or something else is destroyed that was essential to the contract. Um, and so one thing we wanted to just talk about, we've, we've had some conversations recently with some clients regarding their uh, particular cases as to whether or not the impossibility or a commercial impractica impracticability defense um, might apply. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's very case specific um, and we need to look at that every case. And I don't mean to say that to, to be a broad brush, but every case has, a, has, a, has its own facts. And sometimes those defenses actually might actually come into place now, right? And we were all trying to figure out how that was going to work, um, you know, March, April, and, and May kind of time frame. Um, we, ha we have the governor's order, you know, that we need to look at, look at. And then again, whether or not there's the commercial impracticability, impossibility, or frustration of purpose. And the frustration of purpose defense applies where it would be unreasonably burdensome to perform where a highly unusual event undermines the purpose of the contract. And again, that's uh, from that same case that I just mentioned earlier, the Brenner case. Um, the reason we wanted to mention this to you is, number one, I, I really do believe, you know, thankfully most of the time the courts probably 
listen to arguments, look at the legal theories, but they also try to understand what's sort of going on behind the scenes. If someone just chose not to perform because they didn't want to or wasn't you know, economically um, uh, advantageous for them to do that anymore, and they're trying to use the COVID pandemic uh, as an excuse if if it looks like an excuse and if it looks like you know it wouldn't apply, I don't think many judges are going to probably let that fly by. But if you can apply the case law and apply the the, the factors for those defenses, um, and and utilize the the pandemic's effects on your case, it actually might work. Um, don't don't breach a contract uh, and hoping that it would. Uh, that's not what we're trying to encourage you to do, but. We just wanted to mention it to you because it's something that we're starting to see, and we probably will see this probably for the next two years, is, is my guess, just based upon how case law typically works. Um, if you have questions, we just encourage you to reach out to us or reach out to um, another attorney that if you use um, and ask them what their thoughts are about your case and whether or not those defenses would work. So, Ian, um, you I don't know if you've had those kind of conversations yet with, with clients, um, but it's something that we certainly will see. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, we've got a couple of cases going on where these issues are, are right at the forefront. Um, I haven't really looked at cases that have gone up to the Court of Appeals yet. I think we're probably right in that time period where somebody is going to not be happy with their result, where they've made an argument based on one of these theories, and we're getting ready to see some briefing schedules coming out in the Court of Appeals that will actually give us some guidance on how COVID impacts um, these defenses and whether COVID uh, is an impossibility or a frustration of purpose or, or not. And I think you're uh, spot on that it's going to be an incredibly fact-specific uh, inquiry. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens. So. Let us know if you have questions, or if you, uh, if you, if, if, even if you're in a case, someone to you know raises that as a defense. If you need some help, call us and be glad to help you with it. So, Ian, kick us off today on the service of process. What does that mean, and how does that you know, impact our clients? Sure. So uh, I'm going to start uh, today's discussion with a little bit of an apology because today's topic is a little bit dry, and we're going to be taking more of a deep dive into the law than uh, we sometimes take. Normally, we like to try to take a high-level approach, uh, but with something like service of process, it's kind of a technical issue, and even though it's a dry topic, it's really, really important because if you don't get proper service on whoever you're trying to collect money from, even if you get a judgment, uh, that judgment is potentially void, um, so it's a critical stage in the lawsuit. So what we hope to accomplish today is to give you uh, enough information about how service of process works so that you can know what questions uh, to ask your customer whenever you're doing your initial intake process. That way, if something goes wrong and we have to sue this person, not only uh, do we know who we need to sue, we know how we can get them served and really get the lawsuit uh, kicked off in the right way so that we can get a judgment and uh, hopefully hang on to it after we obtain it. So um, service of process, uh, it really deals with due process. Uh, that's why process is included in the name. So it's important that if you're going to sue someone, you give them proper notice. They're entitled to notice as to 
the fact that they have been sued. That way they can figure out if they have any defenses and deal with the situation. So um, we're going to talk today about different ways that you can serve and uh, just different uh, issues that come up as we're trying to serve lawsuits because uh, I don't know about you, James, but I'm always a little bit stressed out until I'm confident that we have good service because uh, sometimes, especially if you get people that are, uh, I'll just say professional debtors, they become really good at dodging service of process. So uh, it's certainly an important thing that we have to have a lot of considerations for. So um, James, talk a little bit about a summons and, and what that entails. Yeah, and Ian, you, you bring a good point. I mean, I don't think I had gray hair until I started worrying about getting uh, people or defendants in case served. But uh, so you got to get service, right? You got to get uh, service of the summons on the defendants. And you know, I still am amazed, y'all. It's a piece of paper, right, that the clerk currently signs that actually gives the authority for that person to be served with the lawsuit, with the complaint. Uh, and if that paper is not signed by the clerk, if it's not clocked in, uh, at the courthouse, if it's, uh, and then not actually served or, or given to, or put in the hands of the defendant, they're not in the lawsuit. Uh, and it's just that absolutely simple. Um, they actually have to, the summons has to be signed. It's very specific. Um, but so you have to actually state on the summons, uh, where the defendant is to be served, right? If it's a corporation, is it the corporate headquarters? Is it the registered agent? Uh, you can also serve the secretary of state, even though that's, that's a, a secondary or third alternative. Um, but you have to state on there where they're to be served, and it's got to be a good address. So you can't just say, you know, it's it's somewhere on Main Street, right? you got to have the, the address of the company itself. Uh, it can be an officer, director, or managing agent of the company. And again, it depends on who the defendant is, right? I'm just, I keep talking about the, if it's a company. Um, but with a corporation, obviously, we can get some of that information from the sector of state. Uh, we have a couple of databases that we use that provide, uh, usually provides us really good addresses for uh, folks. Uh, but if they are professional uh, dodgers, right, it is really, really difficult. I mean, people... I've been amazed how people can fall off the radar um, in the last five or six years. Um, just they don't participate, right? They don't have uh, they don't have any real estate in their name. They may not be updating their DMV. They may not be renting from a, a company or something if they don't own their own house, but they're renting, say, from an individual. That individual probably is not going to put this in the public record uh as to where they're what the address is so those are the things that you need to think about how do you how do you find where someone lives or, or what the corporate address is some entities maintain a professional registered agent if you are authorized by the secretary of state of north carolina you have to have a, a registered agent uh to accept the, the service of process or summons and complaints so those are some ideas there about um how do you get that started so uh, ian what are some of the methods of, of service that are normally used Sure. Um, so I'm going to talk about the methods that we normally use, uh, and I'm going to talk about them in the order that we like to try to do them. Um, so the, the first method is mail of some sort, um, and there's some technical issues about that that I'm not really going to get involved with. But in general, uh, it would be certified mail through the U.S. Postal Service, UPS, or FedEx. 
um, we've kind of encountered an interesting problem in the pandemic, which is uh, some clerks are not accepting mailing, uh, whether it's uh, certified mail or UPS, FedEx, as good service. Because what we have discovered is happening is the person who's delivering the package to the defendant, um, either because their bosses are telling them to do this or they just don't want to be around people, what they'll do is they'll just sign on behalf of the debtor or they'll just draw a line and then leave the document in the mailbox. Um, and that uh, is not good service. So clerks have started rejecting that method of service. Um, I think we're still making a good effort to use certified mail, but I don't know about you, James. I have uh, started scrutinizing the documents we get back a lot more carefully than I probably used to to yep. make sure that uh, it looks like a person actually signed for it and it's not just a line or a scribble. Um, so uh, under normal circumstances, mail is my preferred method, especially if we have a company that maintains a professional registered agent. I know if I send certified mail to CT corporation systems, um, it's likely that uh, I'm going to get good service without a lot of headaches. Uh, it becomes a little more dicey if I'm serving a corporation where John Smith, who is the only, uh, person involved in the corporation is the president and the registered agent. He may just not sign for my package. Um, but in general, if you're dealing with a, a, an established business, uh, it, it's a pretty effective way to get service. Uh, and even with individuals, um, a lot of people, uh, especially if it's their first time having a lawsuit commenced against them, they're just going to sign for whatever comes in the mail because they're a little bit curious as to why they're getting a certified letter. Um, so that's the first way, and uh, in most circumstances, the best way to serve somebody is through certified mail. Uh, the next way, and what I used to do a lot of whenever I did more uh, personal injury work, is serving via sheriff, because in those types of cases, you're often dealing with individuals, and uh, you've got an address for them, and you want to make sure that you get good service. Um, so with that, uh, it it really varies county by county how effective it is. Um, and that's not to disparage any particular sheriff's office. It's just that some counties have more resources and more processes in place than others. Um, one thing about serving by a sheriff compared to certified mail is it's quite a bit more expensive. I think uh, it's about $30 per defendant that you need to serve. Um, and this... Uh, like certified mail is also not working uh, terribly great during the pandemic because um, the sheriff's offices are not really uh, in a big hurry to go and interact with somebody for a, a civil matter. Obviously, they have to do what they have to do on the criminal side, um, but it just, it's another layer of human-to-human uh, -human contact that folks are trying to avoid. So I think we've certainly seen a slowdown in how quickly we get folks served by sheriff whenever we try to do that. Um, the next method, uh, which is generally even more expensive than the sheriff, is to use uh, a private process server. Uh, we rarely do this because normally we are able to get service by either mail or sheriff, uh, but that is certainly an option that we have. 
Um, and the final way, which uh, is the last, last resort, is uh, something called service by publication. Um, that is even more expensive than any of the other methods because you have to actually take out basically an ad in the newspaper to serve someone. Um, and you have to run it for three weeks. And it's just uh, it, it's expensive and it's an often litigated issue. But if there's just no other way to get somebody served, uh, that's really your option. Um, so, James, talk to us a little bit about uh, who you need to serve. So this would be who you actually need to get that summons that the clerk has issued uh, in the hands of. Yeah. And, and again, think about who you're, you're suing, right? Are you suing an individual? Is it a company? Is it a, um, a partnership? Is it an LLC? Uh, could it be a uh, government entity, right? Is it city, county, state, uh, or feds, maybe? Uh, so you got to think through that. And then the rules really provide to us, they tell us, how do you do that, right? So serving an individual is different than serving a corporation in that, you know, how do you, who do you, who do you serve, right? Who do you actually give it to? Uh, and thankfully, the rules sort of lay that out for us. Um, it's something that we look to a, a lot. We, we go back to those rules quite often and try to protect our clients in that. Uh, but it really does make a difference as to what type of entity, individual, personal, uh, corporation, whatever it may be. So, Ian, talk to us just a little bit about how do you serve an individual? Sure. Um, and, you know, going back to my initial apology, this is the only <laughs> episode of this podcast where I've actually got uh, the North Carolina Rules of Court on the desk here with me um, in case something comes up as you and I are having this conversation. But uh, the rules are are reasonably clear about how you serve an individual and there's a good body of case law that uh, clears up many discrepancies. Um, so one good thing about serving an individual is if you're able to actually accomplish getting the paperwork into that individual's hands, uh, generally you've got good service. Um, so what the rule says uh, is that one method of serving an individual is to deliver to the person or leave at their dwelling house or usual place of abode with a person of suitable age and discretion. So that's where it starts to get a little bit uh, fuzzy whenever you're serving an individual is if you haven't actually delivered it to that person. If you've left it with somebody else, the litigation about service tends to come in whenever you're talking about well, was that person authorized to accept the documents on behalf of this person? Uh, were they old enough? Were they competent? Uh, you know, all sorts of questions like that. Um, but in general, uh, it, it's going to be an effective way to get service on an individual if you cause the paperwork to be uh, delivered by either sheriff or process server to their house where they lay their head down at night. Um but where this gets uh, even actually, more actually, Ian, you know, where they lay their head down could be a. I, I'm 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 trying to make a joke here, but that could be that may not be legally right. Well, go ahead. That that is true. <laughs> um, but assuming uh, and that was going to be my next point, uh, there you is go. where uh, where it gets complicated is if you have a person that uh, moves around a lot or doesn't really have uh, a permanent place that they live. Trying to get them served becomes kind of uh, fun and interesting and complicated. <laughs> um, so uh, another way that you can serve an individual, and this is 
I would say fairly uncommon with with an individual is to deliver it to a person authorized to accept service uh, on their behalf. Um, so we see this sometimes uh, with, you know, if we have a client that we know is going to get sued, we'll tell the other lawyer, look, we'll accept service process. Um, so they deliver the paperwork to us and that's good service. Somebody may have, you know, power of attorney or something like that. If they're, if they know they're going to be out of uh, the country, um, that may be a, an example of, of delivering it to someone uh, authorized to accept service. Um, our preferred method, again, uh, is to deliver the lawsuit and the summons to the person by mailing it certified mail return receipt requested and addressed to the party that we're going to deserve. So, so this would be uh, certified mail to John Smith. Uh, and if we get a green card back saying John Smith signed for it, we're reasonably confident we've gotten good service. Um, so uh, the upshot of that is if you're serving by mail, to make sure you have good service, uh, deliver it to the person's address. So again, it's important to know where that person actually lives. And sometimes, uh, particularly in the context of personal guarantors and failed businesses, you may have an address that they put on their credit application with you eight or nine years ago. They may have moved two or three times since then. So it's a good idea, um, especially if you start to see things kind of going south for a, one of your customers to go ahead and get some updated information from them as you're just having conversations with them. Uh, that way you don't have to spend a lot of time figuring out where the proper service address is going to be when you inevitably have to sue them. Um, so James, that was an individual, uh, something we don't see quite as often, but I think we're starting to see, uh, more and more of our, uh, lawsuits with counties, cities, towns, or other public entities. Talk a little bit about how you serve one of those and when you might see something like that. Yeah. And, and you're right. It's, it's starting to come up a little bit more often. And again, it depends on who you contracted with or if the city, county, or the state maybe, or uh, municipality. Uh, is part of the uh, contract, if you will, if that's what the issue is, um, then what you need to do is you actually would serve the mayor, maybe if it's the city or the city manager uh, or the clerk for the town. Um, and you can do that by, again, certified mail. You can do it by sheriff. Uh, you could also do it by you know, personal delivery um, by a pr private process server. Uh, for a county, again, you typically it's the county manager um, or the chairman of the board. Uh, or the county clerk, uh, any of those uh, would work. Uh, and I think even you could look to probably for the member of the board, the members of the board uh, of the commissioners for the county. I would, you know, we always try to start. I hate to say it at the top with the county manager or the or the chairman of the board, but you have to on the on the summons itself. It actually has to be very specific as to who you're serving and what they what role or what title they have with that entity. Um, and there's also possibility you could serve maybe the AG's office, depending on how that plays in. So, for example, if you've got a payment bond claim or some other kind of a claim, uh, breach of contract or non-payment for whatever reason from the governmental entities, um, that's who you would typically look to. Thankfully, for the most part, um, serving a, a governmental entity seems to be a little bit easier. They're not typically avoiding the, the, the uh, service issues like some individuals might. Um, but it's, it, again, it's something you need to know who you dealt with, who the contract persons 
uh, or entities are uh, when you're dealing with that. So hopefully that helps. So uh, what about domestic or uh, foreign corporations, Ian? How's that work? Yeah, so this is probably the most common scenario that we see. We'll usually see some type of a corporation, whether that's a, an actual corporation or an LLC, um, along with uh, hopefully a guarantor or two. Um, so here, what you want to do is deliver the lawsuit and summons to the director, officer, or managing agent of the corporation. Uh, in theory, that information should be reasonably available on the Secretary of State's website. Um, some corporations do a better job of providing that information to the Secretary of State than others. Um, so that's where we always start is with well, what's on the Secretary of State's website. And then if that's not terribly clear, um, we'll do some more digging. Uh, another thing you can do, and this is one of those opportunities to potentially um, create service-related litigation um, is to leave copies of the summons and complaint uh, with uh, someone apparently in charge of the office. So uh, anytime you see things like the word apparently, that's an ambiguous <laughs> term. So uh, folks can disagree about that. And uh, whoever did the serving is probably going to have to provide an affidavit or something as to why they thought the person was apparently in charge of the office. Now, if, uh, the person they left the paperwork with was a seven-year-old that just happened to be in their parents' office, uh, that's going to be a problem. But if the person that the paperwork was left with was uh, you know, sitting at the front desk or otherwise doing something that made it look like they were uh, in charge of receiving documents and uh, was kind of the office manager, so to speak, uh, that's likely going to be good service. But uh, your best bet with a corporation is uh, not to leave the paperwork with someone apparently in charge of the office if you can avoid it. Um, if you're not able to deliver to a director, officer, or managing agent, um, you can serve the registered agent, which we've talked about a little bit. Uh, and I would say this is absolutely my preferred method when serving a corporation is to get the paperwork to the registered agent. Um, and you know, you certainly, uh, and with everything we talk about, uh, we're giving you ideas for things that you can talk about with your customers. Uh, you don't want to scare a customer off by thinking that you're uh, you know, eager to sue them. But at the same time, the more information you can get on uh, a credit application or whatever your initial paperwork is, the better. Um, so I would encourage you to try to get certainly information about well, who are your directors, who are your officers uh, of the corporation you're dealing with. And, you know, if you've got lines for that, maybe even ask them to tell you who the registered agent is. It's public record. It's not like you're asking for anything secret, but uh, it saves. Uh, we're obviously going to confirm it, but it still uh, gives us something to confirm. Um so, um, you know, it, it's, an, it's a good idea for you to get as much as you can to give us a starting point, because that's really all your initial intake documents are going to be, because things change from the time you first contract with somebody to the time that you have to sue them. Um, but what we like our clients to do is to get us as much as we can so we've got as good of a starting point as we can. Um, so... James, this is similar to corporations, but it, it's, uh, in my opinion, 
pretty different. How do you serve a partnership? Yeah. And, you know, Ian, we used to see a lot of partnerships. When I first started practicing, man, it just seemed like we bumped into a bunch of partnerships. And that could be like a formal written partnership. And sometimes they are uh, official or, or, you know, filed actually with the uh, Secretary of State. In fact, I'd love to go back and look and do some research. I don't think I've, I haven't just bumped into many, many um, general partnerships in years now. But there used to be a, a fairly a number of them uh, where, say, for example, two people would, you know, uh, form together, not create a corporation, not incorporate it, not be an LLC. Um, but let's say I, I used two of my friends growing up, you know, so it was Bert and uh, Greg. If Bert and Greg decided to go into business doing whatever they're doing right together, but they just didn't want to incorporate, but they just ran it uh, together, right? They have equal opportunities to to bind the company to take on new work or whatever it may be, they may be doing. So to sue them as a, as a partnership, we actually would serve them both uh, as partners. But then also you need to, if there is a, if there is a formal entity that's with the secretary of state, you actually serve that entity as well. Um, Cause you want to name the partnership in case there's assets in the partnership name. Um, but again, it, it really is, it goes back to very being very specific fact wise. Uh, but you would actually serve them individually as a partner, but also as a as serve the partnership. But I would just I would just say this to you: talk to your attorney uh, beforehand, if you can, or if you find out that it's a partnership that you're working or, or dealing with uh, early on, make sure that you've got uh, you're dealing with someone who has authority to bind the company or to bind the partnership. Um, but again, and those aren't as prevalent as they used to be. But hopefully that helps. So. And I think the, the next topic we're going to do is publication. So walk us through what that looks like. Yeah. So publication is literally the last resort uh, for getting someone served because in order to uh, serve someone by publication and make it stick, you're going to need to be able to show uh, if it's ever challenged the steps that you took to try to serve someone by uh, one of the other methods of sheriff, certified mail, uh, what have you. Uh, it's really uh, kind of expensive, uh, especially given the fact that if you're having a hard time locating someone, um, I'm not sure how likely it's going to be that you're going to be able to collect. Um, so it's one of those things, do you really want to spend six, seven, eight hundred dollars trying to serve by publication? Uh, some people have no choice or they're, you know, if it's clear that somebody's just dodging service, then will do it, um, but if the person or the entity is really just completely defunct, if they've fallen off the face of the earth, um, we usually want to have a conversation with our clients about, well, is it even really worth it? If we can't get them served, are we going to be able to collect? Um, it's an often litigated issue. I've actually been to the Court of Appeals on this issue before. Um, the issue in the case I went to the Court of Appeals on was whether we used a proper uh, publication. Uh, I think we tried to serve in the Eastern Wake News or something like that, and there's uh, some disagreement as to whether that was appropriate in light of where uh, the last known address of the defendant was located. Um, and sometimes, uh, I would say that this is a good tool because uh, in my case, for instance, I mean, the person was 100% in North Carolina. We had a sheriff that tried to serve her something like 40 times at her 
address and she was just absolutely dodging service and we knew that there was an insurance policy in that case so it made sense to go ahead and serve by publication because assuming we got our judgment we had that policy of insurance that was going to provide some recovery um but in order to successfully serve for publication uh you've got to serve in a publication qualified for legal advertising for three successive weeks so it's not that you just get to run one ad uh, the rule is really clear. You've got to run it for three weeks. Um, and then the paper must be circulated in an area where the party to be served is believed to be. Um, so again, this is, uh, this is really a last resort, um, but it, it is an option that uh, I would say we do uh, a handful of times each year for a variety of reasons. So uh, James, talk to us about email is a good service are we there yet you know well that makes sense right because you can do everything by email now so surely you can serve people with a summons and complaint by email and unfortunately the rules don't let us do that yet even though that would in some arguably cases be a really good choice you just can't do it yet um there are some signs that the court systems and the i guess legislature's got to eventually make those rules too but that email might be forthcoming it's not even uh, it's not even in the on the comments yet or in the in, in, in the approval part process yet uh the rules of civil procedure are sometimes obviously slow to, to catch up to what's going on and one thing i was thinking about ian when you were talking about publication is you know the, these rules have been around for a long time think about how long newspapers have been around uh, so you got to find a paper that's in publication right uh in the area to serve my publication Think of how few papers there are now in publication and how few people actually get the paper. Um, you know, and I'm not arguing against doing it by publication because sometimes that's your only uh, choice to do it. And thankfully, we figured out how to make it as efficient as we can be using the rules. But think about how few paper, people get papers now, right? And you don't actually have to pick a paper that is delivered in that person's jurisdiction, even though they're but they have to be in the jurisdiction or in the, in the area that that person lives in. Right. Um, but anyway, getting back to the email, I didn't mean to get off on a, on a tangent there, but on, on the email thing, it's just not, it's not yet. And hopefully it will be. But so one of the questions I was thinking about earlier is let's just say, for example, that you hear your company or even you maybe individually have been sued or are going to be sued by um, a customer. Right. Does that, does that mean you are now in a lawsuit? Not until you get the summons and complaint. No, it's, you're not. Let's just say, for example, that you someone scans a copy of the complaint and emails it to you for you to look at. Hey, I heard you're, you're getting sued or I saw this or whatever, right? Does that count as good service? Nope, it sure does not. Um, because you, if, if you're being sued individually, if you've not received the summons and complaint, then, or it's not been served at a place where you live, uh, based off of what we've talked about today, probably not a good service. Um, so again, email doesn't count. Um, Facebook doesn't count. Uh, LinkedIn doesn't count, right? None of that stuff. You, you can't get service if someone's complaint that way. So hopefully that makes sense. Yep, absolutely. And even if you, for some reason, happen to be at the courthouse just looking around and you search your name and realize you've been sued until uh, they serve you, I, I, they haven't served you. You really... Uh, for all practical purposes, haven't been sued yet. Um, right. 
so um, we've been getting, or I've been getting certainly uh, a question fairly regularly here lately um, that uh, yeah, I think is interesting. And I think the reason I'm getting this question has a lot to do with uh, some of the uncertainty in the economy and just uh, where we are uh, in the world right now with everything that's going on. And the question is, can I sue my employer? And as is always the case with uh, dealing with lawyers, the answer is it depends. Um, what I'll say is that it's often difficult to bring a claim against an employer and that the general answer that I give people is no. And then I start talking to them about, well, there are some exceptions. So uh, the best exception, in my opinion, is that you have an employment contract that you can argue your employer has breached. Uh, in general, employment contracts, at least in North Carolina, are fairly rare. Most employers know that uh, there's really no reason to use an employment contract. Uh, there are certainly some that do for whatever reason, um, but uh, often the answer is there is no contract, so we've got to look elsewhere. The next best type of claim that exists against an employer is a wage and hour claim. Uh, so this is a statutory claim where you haven't been paid uh, the wages that are due to you from your employer. Um, and really from there, I would say the claims get a lot more difficult. So uh, you have certain federal claims under Title VII. These are uh, claims that you would hear about uh, for discrimination for a variety of reasons. Uh, sexual harassment claims, hostile work environment claims, uh, and then we just have something in North Carolina called uh, a claim for violation of the public policy of North Carolina, which uh, if all there exists uh, in the situation to bring some liability against the employer is a violation of public policy, I usually tell the person it, it's really just not, not worth it. Um, there is often a requirement uh, that the person seeking to sue an employer exhaust administrative remedies in federal court. That means going through the process with the EEOC. Um, and just what I tell people in general is that you have to weigh the pros and cons if you're thinking about suing your employer. Sometimes uh, there's not much to weigh. You may have already been terminated or your employer may not have paid you for the last uh three months and you're just fed up. Um, but if the situation is uh, there's something going on at work that you just really don't like, um, you've got to really think long and hard about whether you want to rock that particular boat. Um, and in theory, the employer is not supposed to retaliate against you. Uh, there's a whole body of law around the idea of retaliation. So often what I tell people is if there hasn't been an adverse employment action, until you have something else lined up, you need to think long and hard about um, filing a lawsuit against your employer. Um, and I think uh, it's important whether you're an employee or an employer that if you're either thinking about suing or you know you've got an employee that may well be thinking about suing you, that you go ahead and start having a conversation with a lawyer because these are incredibly complicated cases. I generally don't get involved in them unless it's a contract or a wage and hour case. Um, but all the other types of claims uh, involving employers and employees, just, uh, you know, they're 
there's a lot of law, some of it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, dealing with how these cases uh, are going to play out. And uh, it's something that uh, you would be well served to uh, get some good legal advice before you make any decisions, whether you're sitting in the employee or the employer role. Uh, I've gotten that question probably two or three times in the last week or two, so uh, I just felt like it would be a good topic to address today. Uh, we hope that today has been a, a helpful podcast and that you've learned a little bit more about uh, service of process and that you didn't completely glaze over listening to us <laughs> talk about this fairly dry topic. And we look forward to talking to you in the next podcast. Thank you all.